<laughs> We're having too much fun chatting here. Um, all right. So, Mike, how's it going? It's going, uh, it's going well. It's going uh, good, considering everything uh, that's been going on in the world around us. It's, uh, it is Black History Month, uh, so I think we did want to talk a little more about that. And, uh, and we also wanted to, uh, to bring in our guest right from the top, because uh, I think our guest is someone you know, uh, you know quite well. Yes, absolutely. So Eric McDaniel, I have known him for a long time. I'm not going to say how long because <laughs> it's been a while. <laughs> We're both getting gray hair. But um, uh, Eric yes. is a, prof <laughs> yeah, a professor at UT Austin and an amazing scholar who does just very impressive work. I mean, it's it's interesting because despite the fact that religion is, plays such a huge role in our political system, there's just not a lot of people out there really focused in on how it's impacting politics. And we're also going to talk about our experiences as faculty um, of color in higher education, because that's a very important topic and something that I've been talking about over the, the last few weeks. Um, mm -hmm. And so uh, in any and then, case- and, and, uh, and Terry, you do have a book coming out this month as well. Is that, exactly. is that correct? Exactly. Yes, that's absolutely right. So my book, Radical Empathy, Finding a Path to Bridging Racial Divides is, is going to be launched on February 25th. And actually, we won't be having it this week in higher ed that week because I've got uh, we've got a webinar on February 25th. 25th at noon that we'll be doing um, around the book. So everybody yeah. is invited to that. And I'll make sure some one of my team gets that link in there uh, yeah. during today's discussion. But um, in any case, we're on Facebook Live. We're on uh, we're here on Zoom. And uh, so thanks to everybody who is joining us in either place. Yeah. And so um, Eric, can you just give us a little bit more on your background? Uh, so the, the way I try to describe my work is there kind of there's several things that I'm supposed to talk about in polite company, one of them being race, the other one being religion, and I happen to study both of them. Um, so my work focuses on religion and politics, racial politics, specifically black politics and the role of religion in shaping black politics. My book, Politics and the Pews, focuses on why some churches choose to be politically engaged and others choose not to. Uh, my forthcoming book project with Irfan Narudin at Georgetown and Allison Shortle at, at, um, at Oklahoma. Sorry, I have a hard time saying on you being here in Texas. It's the title of Everyday Crusade, focuses on American religious nationalism. Uh, along with that, I've been doing some work related to the social gospel and prosperity gospel and how that is shaped. Um, American politics, but also black politics. Hmm. So uh, some pretty uh, relevant topics uh, we were talking about around the, the new year uh, when uh, Reverend Warnock uh, was, uh, was really a, a success story uh, at that point of intersection uh, you're, you're talking about. So we'd love to get a little bit of your perspective on, uh, on, on his impact. And then uh, it sounded like you were you were both uh, in high demand uh, for Reverend Warnock and then uh, the Capitol riot happened. So uh, can you walk us through a little bit of what the, what the beginning of your year was like? So it, it was interesting. So uh, January 6th was my 45th birthday and, I, and, uh, and it started off as a great day. I talked to somebody from the Atlanta Constitution Journal about having uh, a, a minister uh, who decided who wants to be in the congregation every Sunday wants to be in the pulpit every Sunday while also being in D.C. And it was interesting because the, the, the 
reporter was like, how are they going to do it? How are they going to do that? I'm like, oh, the reason why the good Lord invented airplanes. I mean, there's a direct flight between Austin and DC, I mean, from Atlanta and DC. So this, this can be pulled off. And that is actually going to be easier now than, than when he was on the campaign trail. Um, but also, you know, one thing that, that the reporter didn't, didn't really talk to me about, but was Warnock is a representation of when we think of the black church and the prophetic tradition. He's um, openly vocal, taking stances that are that are seen to be that are controversial or anti-establishment. And yeah. this is what was used by, by his opponent. I mean, it was it was funny that she said, you know, he isn't Christian enough. Or he's pastor of a black church. Right. And you clearly saw that when he was being trained as a radical, but if you but it's funny because the same people who are saying that he's a radical and he's crazy from um King Holiday were saying, oh King is so great. Right. But if you look at Warnock's message and look at King's message, there really isn't much of a difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's how my that's how my morning started. Uh it was my birthday. I didn't feel like doing much. I took a nap. And then I woke up to an email saying, hey, can you talk to us about what's going on at the Capitol? Come on, the Capitol. And the world was on fire. Uh, that was interesting because in, in many ways, it brought my two themes of research together. So the, the morning I was talking about the Black church and religion, which you clearly see in the afternoon, this issue of religious nationalism, specifically Christian nationalism. So, you know, there's a, some other big flag saying, you know, Christ is my savior, Trump is my president. The number of individuals who were openly flashing religious symbols. And also there's this increased rhetoric saying that God had ordained for, uh, for Donald Trump to be the president of the U.S. Right. This ties into this. So you're seeing this narrative coming into play uh, that really brought my two with the Warnock election and also with the events of January 6th, but also really everything that led to the Trump presidency and the things that have continued on since then, it led to, you know, my current project on American religious nationals. Yeah. That's a lot. That's a lot to deal with. Uh, so, uh, and thanks, uh, thanks for sharing, uh, sharing that story. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and, and I just want to add, you know, it's interesting because mine and Eric's research agendas are kind of <laughs> starting to overlap now because um, my work was on the radical right and um, how, you know, the far right was impacting things like immigration politics and so on. And, you know, we saw that, I mean, I've been getting a lot of, actually, I'm going to do a talk for uh, Harvard in a couple of weeks about um you know, the populist radical right and populist far right. And so it's really interesting, you know, and I, I was doing a talk the other day and I was saying, well, basically all the things I started studying, you know, when I was a grad student have now come to the, you know, the, I was on the fringes of political science and now right. it's on the mainstream. And that's what I was saying about Eric, you know, it's like, it's really interesting how we, you know, and I think we, we should discuss this, Eric, because it's like how interesting that race and religion, all these things that were con- kind of considered to be on the you know very tangential to politics mm-hmm. and political science is now coming to the center, and you know it's it's kind of frustrating to me in a sense. But I mean, I, like I said, you know, it's like all these things that were considered you know gender and race and all of that that oh these are just kind mm-hmm. of on the sidelines are now very much front and center. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the way I 
the thing about political science or the way I think about academia is that it's predominantly um, white male upper middle class. And if you look at you know the stories we tell, the stories we tell are about white upper middle class, particularly uh, men. And so what ends up happening is the groups that are on the fringes aren't being discussed. But if you want to understand where political change comes from, it doesn't come from the group that's in the middle. It comes from the group that are on the fringes. Right. Uh, and that's why I've stated like any survey we put out should do an oversample of racial minorities but also non-college educated whites because these are the people who are on the periphery of society and these are the people who are going to make these pushes. Now, while they need to win over those who are in power to get this done, it allows us to see it allows us to see the movement coming and not be not be shocked and surprised by it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, political science amazes me to this day, and not to political science, but academia to this day amazes me by how they're so surprised when it comes to things related to race. You know, scholars of race have been framing these things for centuries. You're like, oh, I just, I just found this interesting correlation. Like, well, you know, we could have told you about that two centuries ago, and it's, it's, it's a bit frustrating. It's like we've been shouting this as loud as we can. You wouldn't listen. But I guess the only way for you to believe that this is something is it's your ID, and uh, this is kind of one of the major headaches uh, that I've that I've had. It, but hopefully. I guess my hope is that somebody will listen to me, but my fear is you'll get somebody, but hey, going up on this, you know, and they'll act like, you know, stuff that I've been saying is a brand new idea uh, mm-hmm. for them. And this is, you know, one of the things that's plagued, you know, female scholars, scholars of color uh, for a long time. That like, we, we told you this 20 years ago, mm-hmm. but now that you, now that you want to, it's not like you want to listen. It's like, now it's like, oh, I'm going to pay attention to this. Now I've got a brand new idea. It's like, it's not new at all. It's, it's been done before. Well, you know, one of the things that drives me crazy about our profession, <laughs> Eric, is, you know, for example, we haven't been doing sampling of Asian or Latino uh, populations until more recently. I mean, you know, and, you know, at least, you know, Black people were in the picture when we were doing these surveys. But it's like, you know, it really, you know, when I started really delving into survey data and what I was just like, oh, my God, you know, it took our friend um, uh, Karthik Ramakrishnan to really start, you know, getting a focus on South Asians. And, you know, and they've been here in California for in, in other parts of the country forever. And they are, you know, anyway, it, you know, Latino decisions, the, the work that Karthik's doing on Asian Americans, it's, it's all just starting to work its way in into um, the discussion, really. Yeah, yeah. Well, it does seem like the crossover opportunities are here more now, though, to, to reach a wider audience. Uh, I'd love to hear from both of you on that. Like, what what are you noticing in terms of the the interest? Uh, uh, maybe it's around the media or around some news stories or or things like uh, Black History Month. Um, maybe beginning with you, Eric, and then I'd love to hear, hear from you on this uh, too, Terry. Like, mm-hmm. how has the demand shifted? What kind of stories are people looking for? How has your engagement with uh, with broader uh, outlets and media uh, changed in in recent months? So clearly, during Black History Month. Uh, they want people to uh, to speak on things, to speak about various things. Um, but it's clear that when political science really follows what's going on in society. 
So whenever there's a big racial flare-up, you'll see more stuff being published on the race. And so, uh, so a colleague of mine, Tasha Philpott, and uh, another colleague, um, Harvard McClurkin, you know, have studied this. And they've been able to show that you see an increase in Black politics popping up in the three major journals when there's some type of unrest. Uh, and it's one of these things of you only pay attention to it when there's a spotlight. And uh, this has been really one of the major headaches within academia. Amongst the press, it's, it's really the same way. So, you know, I've been brought on to talk about Black Lives Matter, to talk about these various aspects. But it's interesting that, you know, it's, it's almost like we have to keep talking and talking and talking to the vacuum until somebody decides to listen. Mm-hmm. And it, it, gets, it gets frustrating when other people are being, you know, are being listened to all the time as experts. Uh, and but you're only brought brought in as the the expert when it comes to color people. You know, because yeah. people call you an expert, everybody anything else you don't know. Mm-hmm. And, and it'd be truthful, that's how the discipline treats it. You know, oh well, I study race. It's like, well, no, it's not like I just sit there and study race. I happen to be a political scientist who uses black people as my test case for looking at these theories. Mm-hmm. And I think many of the scholars in racial health politics a much broader understanding of the literature than, than the others. And, you know, it, it's it's shameful. And, you know, there are several programs where grad students can go through uh, an American politics program and never hear anything about people of color. Hmm. They can, and, and almost they never existed. Hmm. And this is one of the problems that we have to deal with. And, you know, and the journals are contributing to yeah, absolutely. Our our journal system, which is a very relevant topic right now in higher ed for a variety of reasons, but you know, well, part of the problem is gatekeepers. So it's really interesting the American Political Science Review, which you know has been a gatekeeper for years, and you'll very rarely see articles on you know basically if you're a scholar of even things like like Europe, you know. Um, I had a hard time getting my stuff published outside of you know comparative politics um, journals, but um, and you know, God forbid you study Europe and race. I, I I have to come back to that New York Times article about how basically Americans are are ruining um, uh, the discussions around you know Islam and so on in France. I don't know if you saw that, Eric, but um, in any case, um, just as to come to come back to the journal issue though. But yeah, there's these gate so APSR actually, you know, for the first time has a whole slate of editors who are women. And, you know, this was a radical move for them to choose a, a slate of editors for all women. But, you know, it's, it's, it speaks to the fact that we've had, you know, women and minorities have had such a hard time breaking through to get into these high, you know, highly placed journals. Um, but to come back to that New York Times article is really, I was just fascinated because I've been hearing this, you know, I've, I've studied France and Germany and, and I, you know, I bring the issue of race into, uh, and racism into the, you know, the things I work on, you know, like this whole roots. So I have a whole, a whole other book I'm working on about the roots of racism that looks at the transatlantic connections. I mean, this, you, you have the same problems in France and the UK and Germany as you do here in terms of police violence towards people of color, you know, around, um, you know, over-policing of, you know, neighborhoods where people of color live. And, and, you know, that this goes back 
forever. And, you know, there've been movies about it there, you know, but the French still, you know, the French white male elites want to tell us, oh, you're just bringing your horrible American approaches to this stuff and you're ruining things. Yeah. yeah it's been like a, there's been like a new wave of like actual chauvinism, you know, like actual, like French white dudes, macho French white dudes, uh, as, as strange as that may sound, like leading with this, uh, this, this sort of flavor of well, yeah, but they're they're macho, but it's kind of like, oh, you Americans are, are, are beating up on us. And, yeah. You know, it's it's more about whining. I feel like it's whining. Oh, <laughs> yeah. 100%. Well, but there, there is that new strain of like yeah. ma- macho whining uh, yeah. that that our, our 45th president uh, was uh, was notorious for. But um, uh, yeah, it, yeah it's this idea that white men are, are under attack, you know, people we even looked at that and you find that if you believe white men are being scrutinized, unfairly scrutinized, anything Trump does, you love. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's tapped into this, this idea of uh, victimization of part of, part of yeah. white men. And you, you see this going on, not just nationally, but globally. Right. Yeah. It's, and it, to me, it dovetails with the, the whole notion of white fragility, mm-hmm. which, uh, which is an interesting one uh, that you see in a bunch of different, uh, dimensions but one of them is uh the fragility of like the white alpha male uh which trump was sort of the the quintessential um example of that power dynamic uh and you also see the flaws in it too like the idea that like the the top dog you know requires the group think around him so that his his policies aren't questioned there's no devil's advocate in the room he's not seeking diversity he's not seeking dissent uh there's a lot to learn uh from that but uh but anyway we got a little more political it's a political show so while we're getting <laughs> while, we're, while we're getting a little more political the other thing that I, I i'd love to hear some of your perspective on eric is the uh, the role of the black church in georgia around the mm-hmm. the, the senate uh like the the news that the the interviews that you would have had more of had the capitol riot not <laughs> happened can you talk more about uh, yeah. the, imp- the impact of uh, of the black church and uh, and and other elements to the the Georgia races? Yeah, and it was clearly a sign of mobilizing institutions. And you know, I, I would I would the way I would think about what happened in Georgia is if you take the comparison to the neighboring state of North Carolina, where they had um, where the state went out of its way to get rid of certain activities, certain uh, voting methods that blacks use more so than whites, such as uh, Sunday voting, because the black churches had souls to the polls. So we'll have our service, and then we'll take you to the polls. And I, and there's something about having that organized effort. I think Stacey Abrams and others are able to tap into that to get these institutions mobilized to get people out to vote, mm. and to have someone, and to have the past of Ebenezer, which is probably you know, it was historically prominent. The church in the state because uh, of, because of its history. I mean, you have first African of Savannah, which was the first uh, black church, the oldest black church in America. But because of its connection to King Ebenezer is this, is this very key institution. Furthermore, it's a response to the Trump presidency. It's a response to you know, it, it's almost as if Kelly Loeffler was going out of her way to lose the campaign. The things she kept saying, yeah. you know. Uh, it was like it was. I was going to fit everybody going down the line, right? And you no, know, it was. 
And it, it became clear uh, as it went on. I think what you have right now, not just in the states like Georgia, but other states where there's an issue where the church like, okay, look, we have to we we have to do something. We've been we have not been engaged in activism like we like like we say we are. And so, you know, one of the things that I talk about in the book is most churches. I'm not going to be engaged. The vast majority of churches are not going to be politically engaged. It might tell people to go out and vote, but as far as actually putting skin in the game, organizing marches, contact the they're not going to do that. Yeah. Part of it is an issue of resources. Part of it also is that you know they don't they don't know what to do. But what, you, what they really need are the members to come in and kind of really say, no, this is what we're going to do. And this yeah. is what happened throughout the civil rights movement, where you know you had pastors in leadership roles, but they were in leadership roles because the members said, you will lead this. Right. And I think that's what we're getting now is a groundswell of individuals saying, no, we need you present. We need you to do this. Mm-hmm. And um, I think the churches are responding. It's going to be interesting to see, though, that how are you going to how you reconcile this? Because if you look at Atlanta, where you have a lot of mega churches, the prosperity gospel is very, is very popular. How are they going to reconcile Black Lives Matter and the prosperity gospel? How is someone such as Creflo Dollar going to reconcile Black Lives Matter with a strong support for uh, President or for President Bush? And how are many of them going to reconcile Black Lives Matter with uh, with their support for Trump? Mm-hmm. And it's been this concern about okay, what's going to happen? What's the future of the Black Church uh, in response to Black Lives Matter? In response to all these other issues? That's it's, to me. It's going to be interesting to see what happens. I, I think you're going to see some of these churches, if it's effective, they, they probably will crumble because a lot of them are based around uh, one particular strong personality, which which demonstrate why you know Trump is attracted to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when that personality is gone, what happens? And I expect when that personality is gone, for them to kind of cannibalize each other. Mm-hmm. Also, for there to be problems when their message is out of sync with reality. Mm-hmm. And do you, do you see other, um, like, is there now a Warnock uh, lane that's opening up for other candidates in light of his uh, success in Georgia? I think he has opened things up uh, where you're, he's allowing more of the preachers from the prophetic tradition to find, to find legitimacy. He, you know, he he's clearly taken stances, you know, against the military, against against military action, things like right. that, that you know you would expect King to do. And he was being punished for it by Loeffler and saying he wasn't Christian enough. But then you raise the question: What kind of? Right. And I think one of the things the nation needs to come to is like, if we say we're a Christian nation, what kind of Christian nation are we? Right. Exactly. And if we are a Christian nation. Well, then, well what does it mean to be a Christian nation and really talking about this right. where you see, you know, President Trump tear gassing a bunch of people just so they can take a picture in front of a church with a Bible, not his Bible, but a Bible. Right. It makes you question like, are we really a Christian nation? And are we using Christianity as a, as a religion or as a sledgehammer mm-hmm. to get people to do certain things? Uh, so right now I'm teaching my course on, the on um, black religion and black politics, and we're talking about slavery and how 
the message of the slave masters was about be obedient. And, you know, uh, you'll be equal under God once you're dead. Mm-hmm. And, but, the, but then, yeah, the response of the slaves, like, yeah, that's not true. And so why, how do you reconcile this? And I think we're, we're coming to a point where it's become very clear that this Christian fundamentalist movement is not really about Christianity. It's about whiteness. Yeah, and and the white that they are so, yes, it's, it's about, you know, so Christine Hobbs to May has a book, uh, uh, Jesus and John White. Uh, you think of the recent book by uh, Robbie Jones, White Too, White Too Long. There are numerous books coming out about this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and my research has shown this as well, is that what's going on is it's become explicitly clear that this Christian fundamentalist movement is not about religion. It's about race. And it's about race and masculinity. And they're using religion as a way to justify uh, these things. Yeah. Uh, and, and then for the Black church to be the Black church of old, it's going to have to come in and directly confront that. I mean, the reason why the Black church exists is as a, as, as a confrontation of this. And if the church stays silent, then is it really the Black church anymore? And the, I think the other interesting component to this, Eric, is the abortion issue, right? I mean, it, it, especially for the Catholic Church, this has become a, almost a dividing line of saying, you know, abortion at all costs, including supporting Trump. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, yeah. and that's true for many evangelicals as well. But it seems to me that the, you know, the Catholic Church in particular is heading for a crisis around this because... Um, you know, it's, it, they're losing a lot yeah. of parishioners over this issue. Well, and just jumping in as a lapsed Catholic, uh, lapsed white Catholic too, you know, like there is a history, a uh, long history of social justice among, you know, Jesuits and, and nuns uh, who were out with the, the Freedom Riders back in the 60s. And now that history seems to, that, that's why for me, more as some like kind of a ecumenical sensibility, lapsed Catholic, I actually like seeing Warnock in the Senate, because I do feel like yeah. there is a moral, uh, there's an ethical center to to him and and his his life story that that's that's found that's founded in the church, and that that's why I was maybe hopeful a bit in that if he was successful, are there other candidates like him who may be willing to put their you know toss their hat in the ring, uh, and then uh, maybe the related question is that it does seem to contrast a little bit of what King did which was more community or he wasn't running for office yeah. so and which you know we were yeah. talking about uh you know reverend barber as the, the as sort of a maybe a counterpoint there where where he's activating a, against poverty but not through a not through like a political a, an elected position um any perspective yeah. on that so in many ways, you can think of Warnock as the evolution of King, of moving it from outsider politics to insider politics. Mm-hmm. So bringing the uh, prophetic message to uh, to Congress or to to, uh, to the Senate, and and it's not unusual. So if we think of Reconstruction, many of the earliest Black elected officials, uh, Black senators, Black members of Congress, were ministers. So this, this is this is not new. Uh, John Lewis was a minister. Uh, so it, I think what's uh, critical here about Warnock is that his message is very religious, but also very progressive. 
And there's been this really difficult time of some some certain reason people have um, made the argument that you can't be progressive and religious at the same time. Mm-hmm. And they and this is problematic. And so people try to use the abortion argument. And I was talking to someone last week and he said, look, there's a difference between being pro-life and pro-birth. And what you see coming out of these groups is they're not really pro-life, they're mm-hmm. pro-birth. Mm-hmm. And because if you're pro-life, that means you want the child to be born, you want the child to be taken care of as, as yeah. goes forward, but at yeah. least want the child to be born. Right. Uh, but then also, if you look at the history of the abortion issue, it really wasn't something that was politicized. It, be, it became an issue of like, okay, how are we going to mobilize people? Oh, we'll use this issue to mobilize people. And it's, in many ways, it's kind of a manufactured crisis in, in that regard. And I think once they start getting, once you start asking them, okay, look, are you pro-life or pro-birth? You know, because when people make arguments such as yeah. justified rape and things like that, like they made, you know, about eight years ago, you become realized, okay, they care less about life. They only mm-hmm. care about birth. Yeah. And... The thing about some of Warnock is Warnock can come in with clear religious credentials. I mean, Obama had it, yeah. Clinton had it. What I find this most comical is you see the image of the Democratic Party being anti-religion when Reagan comes. But the problem is, before Reagan, you had Jimmy Carter, who was still teaching Sunday school while he was in the White House. Right. Reagan had been married several times, wasn't that religious, but they yeah. hung on to him. You get George H.W. Bush, who was religious. You get Bill Clinton, you get, you know, you get George W. Bush, who was, who was fairly religious. But you get Obama using a lot of religious language. But then, but then they really glom on to Trump. Mm-hmm. And who really has, when you ask anything about religion, can't really answer the question. I mean, when you say two Corinthians, that basically says, okay, you know, look, I fell asleep in church a lot, but I know it's second Corinthians, not two Corinthians. Uh, so, uh, to me, the question becomes, are you really, is it really about religion or is it about something else? Hmm. Just like, you know, the whole uh, being upset about Kaepernick taking a knee, is it really about the flag? And right. you come to find out, no, it was never about the flag. Right. But they're using abortion, using all these other things to kind of to mask what's really going on. Right. And, and one of the things about this is I think what Warnock does is says, look, you can't, don't use religion um, if you use a religion just to maintain power and grow your power, you, you basically uh, made religion useless, mm-hmm. and you you are you are a heretic in that fashion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, you can't ignore the fact that you know Jesus went after the Pharisees, um, <laughs> and so yeah, it's 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 a really interesting dilemma. I think we're going to be seeing. Uh, going forward in in politics more generally. It was fascinating too to see that he had been arrested for protesting in the Capitol, you know, and like, it just, it was almost, the good news is it seems like he has his act together, but it, it is almost, it reminds me a little bit of, uh, you know, the the shock you were going through, Eric, on, on January 6th. It does feel like just being Raphael Warnock on January 6th must have been, uh, kind of surreal to because was he but he, i guess yeah. he wasn't he wasn't in the senate yet though right he had just won the day before so it was still loffler mm-hmm. yeah so he had been sworn in yet yeah 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 but and now so, loffler still had a vote right 
and she and she did switch right i, I recall like i think after the she, after the riot she yeah, she wound she, up uh, certifying right yeah she, so she switched but she still accused there of being malfeasance so she said oh there's still something wrong so she still kept the the story of voter fraud going i, I want to vote in favor right Right. Uh, so it was, she tried to have it both ways. Exactly. Yeah. But I mean, we haven't talked that much about sports yet. So this is going to be my oh. opportunity there. But, uh, but <laughs> like, uh, but also like for the, for your WNBA team to mutiny on you. Yeah. Like that was really, that was really interesting. And that is an interesting, uh, I know it's, it's slightly outside of the church, but the idea of uh, how sports uh, organizations are now leading some of these social movements and are starting to have more of a, a political impact. Uh, I'd love to hear from, from both of you on that because I think that's- oh, uh, Well, I'm sorry. It is just yeah. so hypocritical of the NFL to be out there saying, oh, we're spending millions of dollars for social justice and all this stuff. And then, you know, Colin Kaepernick still can't get a job. <laughs> right. Well, I wonder, I mean, he's been out a few years too. I, I think it's like, cause he, there's a, it's not easy to stay relevant as athletically as a football player, you know? So that's why I, I would be curious. Yeah. And also the will to train, to get that job when you may not, you may be closed out anyway. Uh, you know, maybe it's a chip on his shoulder, but also maybe he's just got other things to, to do. But Eric, I'd love to hear from you a little bit. We, we love talking sports and I, I sense from your body language that yeah. you, you can, uh, you can engage in this conversation. <laughs> The WNBA thing was, was critical. And I think we talk about the kind of things the NBA did, but the WNBA players had much more to risk. I mean, if you look at their salaries, uh, their salaries are paltry compared to what's going on in the NBA. Mm -hmm. So if the NBA player, you know, decided to do this, they have enough money to fall back on. There's enough ownership to fall back on. It's not like the like the 60s where uh, – you know, where Jim Brown was, you know, other people were taking kind of a big risk in doing these things. Mm -hmm. But when Lee's doing it, it's become very clear that you know, they see money. They are going to do what they, what they see money. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's, you know, it's, it, it may kind of changing topics, but if you think about MTV when it first started off, only black person that could get on MTV was Michael Jones. Once they realized, hey, there's money in black faces, they pop up. Right. The and the WBA to me in many ways it pictures kind of like at least the way I think things should be carried out, and that's where black feminist perspective. Mm -hmm. If you think of the experiences of black women, you know, they're marginalized and they're gender because of race, they're marginalized in the race because of their gender, and this also leads to just all kinds of problems, multiplicative problems, that they are aware of what it's like to be at the very bottom. Mm -hmm. And you have this thing, and I think, you know, this is something that you see you know, President Biden making very clear, you know, black women save me. When it comes to the Democratic Party, it's black women. Like, um, it's again, my colleague, Tosh Philpott, she's pointed out that the gender gap, once you take black women out, there's no longer a gender gap. Black women have been so dedicated to the Democratic Party uh, and to many of these social justice issues. So while you may see a, a male face, it's women who are doing all the work. And so while we talk about all the work of King, we forget about, you know, Coretta Scott King and her work. Uh, we forget about the Ella Bakers and the numerous individuals who, numerous women who sacrifice their time, uh, time, livelihood to these things accomplished. Yeah. But going on with the sports leagues, you know, 
the NFL, yeah, I mean, it was there were too many black players wanting to say to say no. Same thing with the NBA. Mm-hmm. While the while the NFL is saying, hey, we're all for racial justice, it's hard for a black for a black guy to get a head coaching position. So it's and you know the Houston Texans hired one hired their black coach, but it was kind of like, oh well, we can't get anybody else. We'll we'll take you. Right. And the class complaint about about black coaches um, is they only get the job when the ship is is sinking and it's just god awful. That's when they get a job. Right. And then when, when they write the ship, all of a sudden they're fired and let go. Right. You know, the Detroit Lions to me is the best example. You know, Jim Caldwell, letting lights out, but he was pretty good. Yeah. And you bring in this guy, you bring in the, the one coach, Matt Patricia, and it's like, what is wrong with you? You keep him longer than you can Caldwell. Then you, right. then you fire him and bring in a guy who's talking about body kneecaps. Right. It's like, can we, can we, so you went from a, a black coach who's decent to basically a, a, a B-list WWE star. <laughs> so, and you're even talking about Rich LaCroix. Right. That's, those are some things that when I look at them, I'm like, this makes sense. Right. Well, and, you know, and, and, and you go up a level in the in the NFL, it's even, the representation gets worse, you know, which is the other the other element. Yeah. If you look at yeah. ownership and, and leadership, yeah. Yeah, and it's like, you know, Black coaches can't afford to be mediocre, even though the vast majority of coaches are going to be mediocre because that's just the nature of sports, right? I mean, not everybody's going to be in the Super Bowl every year. And, you know, Mike Tomlin is just lucky that he's been able to hang out, hang hang in there with the the Pittsburgh Steelers. They've they've always done well. Yeah. But, um, it'd, be nice to, it'd be nice to see an unqualified uh, black head coach get a job because there's lots of unqualified white head coaches who yeah, get jobs. No I think kidding. that's that's the part. And like some of them and, turn and out they like, over and over again, they're unqualified. Yeah, yeah, well, and even I would argue I'm a Giants fan, and you know, by the way, this is this is our uh, this is our ESPN version of uh, of this week in high red. So 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 you're welcome. But uh, but I'm a Giants fan, and like you know, a Joe Judge probably didn't even deserve his chance, but he looks like he turned into a decent coach. Dan Campbell, Matt yeah. Patricia, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of these other guys who are getting shots, who they take a chance on that guy. Very seldom do they does a black coach get that take a chance on him. It's more like they've proven themselves. They've been an offensive coordinator. You know, mm-hmm. they've, they've paid their dues. It's more the fast track is mm-hmm. what's, uh, what seems to be closed off. And I, you know, I'd point out that part of the problem is college football here because there's very yeah. few black college head coaches in football. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that pipeline is missing and it's, yeah. and you know, Eric is funny because it's the same thing with professors right <laughs> to come back to yes. that you know it's like everybody's where's the pipeline well you know we aren't create. you know we've had to create a pipeline it's so funny I was having a discussion the other day about you know how do you get a job in, in higher ed as a black woman or a woman and it's like it's all about networks and we've we've finally been able to you know that's yeah. what I did at UT right I you know we had Tasha yeah. we had you know Juliet I went out and, and found you know it's like we have to hire Eric, you know, for God's sake, you know, bring yes. him in. And, and, you know, we, we were able to bring other people because, you know, I utilized my networks and said, tell me who the good people are, right. you know, and, and that's, and somebody's like, well, it's too bad. We have to use these networks. I'm like, well, but that's the name of yeah. the game. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, that's how, you know, football yeah. coaches, you know, faculty, yeah. you know, everything in higher ed is about what networks you have access mm-hmm. to. Mm-hmm. And that's what, whenever I do these workshops. You just need one person to say you're brilliant. 
Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. You and need you need know, the right person to say you're brilliant and it works. Yeah. Right. That's right. We, and well, you also you also need the right person at the top of the network. And particularly if that person is of color, you know, the Tony Dungy family tree is pretty much the the, the main way in which uh, you know black head coaches or, or coordinators have a pathway to a coaching job because he made a point of doing that. I was happy to see, you know, Arian's staff uh, on yeah, the Yeah, I was gonna mention that too. Yeah, even though I was yeah. pulling I was pulling hard for their quarterback and, and that team to lose, yes. their, their, their coach and his coaching practices, aside from the fact, you know, he can't help but be a white coach in that position. The fact that a white coach yeah. has that position to begin with is a problem, but without it being more open. But the fact that then from that point, he, I guess made it a point. I don't even know. Is it is it a conscious uh, choice that he's made? That I haven't really dug deeper into either. what what resulted uh, with. I mean, the reality is it resulted in a Super Bowl. Uh, right. So yeah. it's, it just, but it's. I thought it was an interesting. Uh, while we're in the NFL space, to to talk a little bit about, it kind of starts at the top and who gets those top positions, and then they can they build that culture from the top down. Well, actually, I think that's a critical yeah, I mean, component. Yeah, go ahead, Eric. I was going to say, if you, you know, I think it was, he said, uh, Byron Leffel, which was a, was a key part, of course, of, like if Byron Leffel, which wasn't available, he may not have taken the job. So he, mm -hmm. he had created like strong connection with Byron Leffel. And then Todd Bowles, you know, yeah. was, he was coaching the Jets. Right. And that's, that's basically like becoming the captain of the Titanic three hours after you hit the, uh, hit the yeah. iceberg. Right. <laughs> Nothing you do is going to win. You're going to slow the sinking, but it's the, the ship is still sinking. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, in any case, I think that, um, you know, the lesson we're learning is that it's it's not just, you know, and, and actually the, the, the lesson I tell people is because we still need those white allies, right? Mm -hmm. And it's those white allies that open yeah. doors and create, you know, they certainly created opportunities for me. All of my mentors in higher ed were mostly, you know, white males mm -hmm. who, you know, saw some you know, said that thing you just said, Eric, you know, oh, you're brilliant, you know, let's move you into, and so yeah. that's, that's really what it takes. And that's, you know, we're in a time period where that's not going to change very quickly. It's not just about, um, you know, oh, you're very talented. We're going to, you know, it's like somebody has to recognize that and say, yes, we want this person. We want to pull this person in. Yeah. And, um, you know, so I think that's, a, that's an interesting component of this, that we, we still have to rely on, you know, people like, you know, the coach of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers who says, I'm going to pull in all these people because they're really good. Yeah. <laughs> and we're right. going to win a Super Bowl with them. But right. They just happen to be black. Well, and, and to me, it, it does tie a little bit to the, the idea of community policing and also even, you know, having more black teachers uh, right. in K-12. It's like if yeah. your coach, if the coaches are, are black players who are coaching black players, they're going to be able to connect and talk about shared experiences in a way that a white coach can't, you know? So for me, the, 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 the most atrocious part of the, the, the NFL's race problem is the fact that it's a 70% African-American league. And it, it, that to me would justify the, the, the staffing mm -hmm. choices that that Arians is making, even just from almost a utilitarian nature, like you want to motivate these players, find people who actually understand what they're going through. Yeah, and, and the interesting thing about the teachers is we find that the more black teachers a school has, you've seen the black students do better, but also white students do. Better. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. There is something about acknowledging, being aware, being aware that you feel like to be marginalized. Yeah. And being aware of the marginalized experience helps. In academia, the places where we've seen, uh, so Michigan is probably you know, the, the place that's produced the most black PhDs. But they did this for the most part with, uh, for, for a while, they only had Haynes Walton. Then they got Vince Hutchins. But they had two, so it wasn't like they had, you know, we had six black faculty at one time. And in the time I've been here, we produced one black PhD, or maybe two. It all depends on whether you identify as Latino or not. But there's actually, there's an economist who looked at this and said, you know, Michigan has produced about one or two black PhDs per year. Um, we, over the 24 year period, produced one. Hmm. Uh, UC Berkeley, which has never had a black faculty member, produced 10. Hmm. So, what are we doing? And there's something, there's something about culture that we need to be aware of. There's something that needs to be done. And this kind of goes back to what I was saying. Uh, so, you know, it's like, look, this is a field that's predominantly white, predominantly male, predominantly open. Yeah. So, yeah. they are from. They were there from the, the top, they're from the top of the pile, and they have a hard time, they have a hard time understanding what's going on with other people. You can see it in their research, but then you can also see it in how they, in how they interact with students. And then you just have you know, those who just outright, just antagonistic towards people of color. Right. Um, you know, have a current colleague, Terry has a former colleague, uh, who anything dealing with race, I mean, just went just went after them and just just tore them apart. Yeah. We had a we had a search this year uh, in racial politics, and this individual went digging through the files. We were looking for somebody seen because you want somebody to come in help train grad students. Went through the files and pulled out somebody who clearly did not fit what we were looking for, but said, "Well, uh, because of his sexuality, he's clearly in the diversity." You can't, you know, you can't ignore it because he's white. And force this down our throat. Now, but eventually, you know, we were able to, we were able to get, get out of it um, because the person came and clearly, clearly was not a good fit. But the fact that we had to deal with this. Exactly. Obviously. Um, and the same individual will knock certain scholars for not publishing in the right places. And that same individual has not published in those places. So it's it's this weird like we'll, we'll change the standards. Uh, so like if going back to sports, the knock on Eric the enemy is well he didn't call the plays. Mm. Well, there are a lot of people who didn't a lot of coordinators who didn't call the plays. You still got a job. Right. But you you keep moving it around. Right. And you know people who've studied race realize when when it happens you move it around. You disprove one thing and they move to another thing. They move right. to another thing. Right. And it's just so deeply implanted that you can't get it out. Right. And the people who say that they're allies are allies until they until they have skin in the game. Mm-hmm. It's amazing that people I've seen kind of turn tail when um, when there is no skin in the game. And one of the things I've learned in academia is the more somebody shouts about how liberal they are, the more they shout about how much they campaigned for Obama, the more no idea trust. When the uh, was it Amy Cooper in New York thing happened. I'm like, oh, look, she's liberal. She gives all this money to liberals and this, this, any other. I was like, yeah. oh, I work with a bunch of Amy Coops. You know, that, that is not due to me at all. And uh, that's just the problem. That's one of the problems we have is people are allies in word, not necessarily deed. 
And you need those individuals who are going to be there and they can care less about your race. And, and who, who basically know you're a good scholar, let's work, let's get these things done. And you know, aren't going to belittle you and say, you know, you know, I had my, one of my colleagues, one of my friends, when she was coming out, said one of the faculty members at her institution said, you know, she's real good. She can do real political science. Oh, As if to say, studying black politics wasn't real. Political science. So and I that's just the world I, we live in. So yeah. this is why I see a lot of people leaving the discipline because they can't yeah. take it anymore. And just a couple points there, Eric, you know, that one black uh, you know, student we got through the program, you know, I literally like grabbed that student when he was an undergrad and said, you're coming <laughs> and made sure he had everything yes. he needed and, and, you know, and, and told him we would get him a job. And he, you know, he's now a tenured professor to come back to Robin's question, you know, if we're producing few black PATs, what about tenure? And of course, tenure is a whole other issue. Um, and, but, you know, we're, I think we're finally getting to the point that we have a large enough group of us out here who can support Black PhDs getting tenure. So we can be there to write yeah. the letters and, and make sure that they're getting what they need and that they're, that we're co-authoring that, you know, so uh, there's a lot of things that, you know, especially if you're a first generation Black PhD that you may not know you need to do. And, and, so, but as a professor, I have, you know, I co-author with all of my students, you know, that, that, that student we had who, who ended up, you know, the one black student I co-authored, you know, I made sure he got into a publication, you know, yeah. there's all these things you have to do that if you, you have to understand how to play the game. And so, you know, that's, that's really important, but, you know, it comes back to Issy's question um, about, you know, incorporating uh, discussions about race into religious education, because it's, a, it has a lot yeah. to do with representation. Um, and so if we don't have that representation, we aren't able to have an impact on the education system. And I, I think the way to address it is to have more people of color doing that work. Very much so. Giving these different perspectives, it's the reaction to the 1619 project is very telling um, because exactly. it's, 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 it's very telling because it says, okay, you still believe this idea of innocence, you've done nothing wrong. It's like, we're just telling the story, you know, and it's, let's, let's be truthful about it. You know, one thing I can say about South Africa is they've had a truth and reconciliation commission. So mm -hmm. they've been able to put a lot of it out there. Like, Look, this is what happened. America is, doesn't want that. And I, and I would say 1619 project, the fact that you know, corporations and universities are looking back into their histories and how they dealt with slavery is a closest we're going to get to a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Mm -hmm. You know, the fact that Texas school books refer to slaves as indentured servants is problematic. That when Michelle Obama mentioned that the White House is built by slaves and Bill O'Reilly had to qualify it with, well, they were well, they were well fed. <laughs> what is, they're still slaves. Uh, there's a, if you get time, there's a hilarious YouTube channel called Ask a Slave. And it's a woman who, uh, who played a, uh, she worked at a plantation, she played a slave, and she's just recounting the questions that she was asked. It, it is, it, it is uh, angst little comedy. So it's like The Office. If you like The Office, you're going to love this. Because you're like, I can't believe somebody actually asked the question. Uh, but it, but this, is, this is what you have going on here. Uh, and... It, it going back to you know academia, 
it's just it's kind of the same thinking of of um, just asking really silly questions, not really thinking things through, and just saying, you know, we know we know academics like social skills, and it comes even more apparent when dealing with limited people of color, and it, it's chasing us out. And those of us who are able to make it, or able, those who are able to make it, used to make it out of spite. Right. Do you think? Uh, do you think any of the move online is opening up opportunities to connect to? Like sometimes the, it's a numbers game, and there's only a handful of, uh, of of people of color on a particular campus. But if you can start having uh, broader ways to connect to other people who are going through shared similar experiences, uh, has that? Do you think there's some hope there? Have you have you had any experience with that? Well, uh, interestingly enough, I, the last semester I had a class of 2,000, and this semester I'm a class of 1,700 wow. uh, online. Online is good in terms of the breadth, but you lose the depth. And so right now I have a class of a dozen that's online, and, it, it, and I'm asking questions as crickets. You know, I, I, in a classroom it might be it might be like that, but it's it's hard to make that connection because there's something about being in person, we can see certain things about body language yep. that can kind of tip you off, but you can't pick up um, online. Online is good because you, you can reach to, you can reach out to a larger group. And in fact, we're working on something right now to reach out to HBCUs and Hispanic serving institutions to say, yeah. look, you know, here's what it means to be a political scientist. This is being led by um, my colleague Terry Chapman. And what we want to do is eventually make it like bring people on campus because you realize if we have you here, we can work with you. It's though a lot of it is those side conversations. It's those you know, with Zoom, everything is so formal. Yeah. And as we know, most of the business gets done, most of the ideas that come about come about with those side conversations. So mm -hmm. when the panel is over, you say, Hey, I was thinking about what you said, let's go grab a drink, let's sit down and do something. You don't get that. Um, you know, you don't get that over um, over Zoom. And so it's Breath is good, but death is good. Interesting. Yep. Yeah. It's yeah. I, I agree that you know you lose something in translation when yeah. I was just talking about this with a. a I'm on the board of a, a, chair, a charitable organization, and we were you know we have our regular board meetings, but it's like we've lost that element of let's just grab a glass of wine and so you know we're actually going to have a meeting. Um, Although. Where, uh, we got to get you into Clubhouse. Uh, yes, Terry, I know. Uh, are are you in Clubhouse, Eric? Clubhouse, I don't. Um, I heard it's only good for those who have the uh, iPhone. I have a, right, an right. Android, and so yeah, I, I was talking the, to someone. The Android version is horrible. Yeah, I, I was. I don't think it even exists. I was talking to someone who got an got an iPhone four uh, that he's using uh, just so that because it's it's just for like audio chats. But the, what's interesting is it's the closest thing I've gotten to like the informal drop-in nature of yeah. conferences. And I am curious whether other platforms are going to, whether it's Clubhouse or others, because uh, I did hear um, Mark Cuban's launching something called Fireside, which is supposed to be another version of that same format. Things that aren't, it's almost like post-Zoom platforms that uh, can actually yeah. uh, build features in that are a little more, um, about those informal connections. Uh, the other platform I saw was Wonder, uh, which was kind of interesting. It did, it did some of that stuff uh, like that. But but I agree with you. It does feel your point about the formal formality of the conversation in particular. Maybe it's because we're all sitting, staring at our a, a, a web camera. 
uh, but it does feel like the artifice of it is kind of foundational to the platform. Although it's still convenient, it's super convenient to get that breadth that you're talking about. Indeed. Yeah, it, it's it, so I like Zoom because you know I don't have to leave my house to go to meetings. <laughs> but the problem is, I don't get the joy I would get out of meetings. Yeah, uh, normally get out of meetings. There's a, there's a small talk early on. There's a small talk once you leave. Yeah, that is uh, beneficial for meetings, and you, you don't get that over Zoom. Yeah, and uh, and it's clear that with students, especially with, with teaching right now, that getting them to be engaged is really difficult over Zoom because because you if you're sitting there in your house. You can't separate home from school. Yeah. You know, I'm watching my, you know, watching my kids do it. It's difficult because you're, you're just sitting there because you're not leaving your room, and mm -hmm. you know, you've been trapped in your room for a year. Right. So it's, it's starting to get to. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, to come back to that, we haven't done our COVID check-in, so I guess it's time for that. Oh. Oh, I feel like we need like special music. It's it's COVID check-in time. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. <laughs> so, so Eric, what's so I just saw the article about um, Berkeley. They're having an outbreak, and um, they actually have the campus police like making sure students stay in their dorms. It's pretty crazy. Wow. Um, but Eric, I'm just wondering what's been the experience in the last few months at UT related to COVID. So I think so far we've been pretty good. I and mean, we had the, there was the spring break group that went to, um, that went to Mexico. Right. And then they all came back and you saw, it, saw it explode. And there, there's a lot about like, why they shouldn't have done it. And something like, look, we couldn't get refunded. I'm like, it's people like, oh, they should have been expelled. That was, you know, a year ago. Thus far, what I can tell there haven't been a lot of outbreaks. You know, when I do go on campus, I go on campus twice a week. And when I go, you know, there's a spot to get tested right as I'm walking up. So mm -hmm. right um, at, at Jester Dorm, you know, I was actually, I got my first shot uh, last week and I get my second shot uh, a week from Monday. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I'm, I've been able to get in and get that done. From what I can tell, for a large university, we've handled it fairly well. It's, uh, I know people who taught course uh, classes in person said that students are actually showing up more than they used to because mm. they just need something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and, and last semester when I taught my class, it was asynchronous and online and having office hours. Students would just show up to office hours because they were bored out of their mind. <laughs> yeah. They had nothing else going on. And so yeah. <laughs> it was you know, like, look, I just left home. So you feel a little bit homesick. Yeah. Like everybody's, oh, when you get to college, you make new friends. No, you're stuck in your, you're stuck in your room. You're not stuck in your dorm. You're stuck yeah. in your dorm room. Oh my god. Mm -hmm. but yeah, from what I can tell now, Austin is a hot spot. Austin is bad. Right. But from what I can tell, UT is doing okay. But as far mm -hmm. as being the state is not great, um, and Austin is doing really bad. Mm -hmm. um, but I think UT has taken measures to kind of keep anything crazy from happening. Yeah, and so I'm, we haven't had like massive outbreaks like Notre Dame or other places. Right. Yeah, and I'm seeing that uh, quite a few faculty are able to get uh, vaccinated. So so that seems like it will help with a mm -hmm. lot of that. And even here in California, there are some places where faculty, like I know have colleagues at UC Irvine who've been able to get vaccinated and 
and so on. So they are, you know, putting people who, um, you know, need it. Uh, and then, I, and then I was just thinking, it's right around uh, spring break was going off early in some place. Like some campuses are actually having a break because uh, you have to kind of have a break. And then what are what are eighteen to twenty two year olds going to do when they have a a break schedule? Well, actually, that that's been the opposite. A lot of campuses are canceling spring break this year so they can get okay. through the semester fast and and uh yeah. you know be done <laughs> and get them off I, where I, I, they moved it up to winter break at least where i was talking to this unc charlotte but uh but maybe it varies depending on on where you are but i hadn't even thought of that uh around the the spring because it does feel like we're starting to more broadly the numbers are looking better across the country um which is good like at least it does seem like we peaked and we're starting to come down and that's certainly true here in, in yeah. brooklyn uh is that also true out by you uh terry yeah i mean you know obviously los angeles was a hot spot so. right right um but yeah certainly here in the bay area i think we're coming down off of that peak we saw the post christmas peak but everybody's yeah. worried now that we'll have the super bowl surge <laughs> exactly um but in any case we're actually at one o'clock so uh, that went by very, very fast. <laughs> that was fun. That was a good conversation. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. And Eric, you're reminding me of my old colleagues. Oh, gosh. I, I know exactly who you're talking about. But in any case, <laughs> I wish you the, the best. You, you have my blessings. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. It thank was you, really Terry. fun. And uh, yeah, we will be doing this again. We're gonna actually, like I said, we're, please join us for my book launch. But we'll be back. I believe March tenth is our, our next date, and we'll be having some exciting discussion again. Um, by then, we'll know what happened with the impeachment and all that. So, yeah. Bye bye. Thank y'all so much. Yes. Have a wonderful rest of your day.